Let this be the, an election be a referendum between me and the Catholic Church. I challenge you now. I challenge the Catholic Church. You are full of shit at Mapang. Kayo mga katoliko, kubadiwala kayo dyan sa mga pare, pati obispo, doon kayo kung gusto ninyo. Hello, I'm Liam Gammon. I'm the editor of New Mandala, and I'm here with Nicole Corrado, who's our Philippines editor. Nicole, what exactly did we just listen to there? Well, we heard the President of the Republic of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, um, taking a very aggressive tone against the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, for observers, this has been incredibly shocking. Why would any politician speak up against one of the most powerful institutions in the country? Yeah, I mean, as a non-Philippines expert, I can remember watching that 2016 presidential campaign and feeling shock that a Philippine politician could get away with saying these things. I just always assumed that the church had this prestige within society that meant that people just wouldn't vote for you if you were seen as being quote-unquote anti-Catholic. So obviously I got something wrong about the role of the church. I mean, what was it? I mean, I share the same impression that you have. I grew up at a time where the Roman Catholic Church really had huge political influence. I've witnessed two revolutions that the church led that ousted presidents because of their persuasive power to the people. And so when I heard Duterte running for office, calling bishops names, I thought, all right, that's the end of this guy's political career. But obviously, I too was wrong. And so what we are doing for the next half hour is to talk to an expert on the matter. We are talking to Jail Cornelio. He's a sociologist from Ateneo de Manila University, a Jesuit university. And he's done a lot of work unpacking what it means to be a Catholic in the Philippines today. And what we are going to learn in the podcast is that there's just so many stereotypes about the power of the Catholic Church in the Philippines. And we should also mention that this is the first in a series of podcasts that you're doing for New Mandala that sort of take a look at the Philippines beyond the cliches. Absolutely. We are having five episodes in the first season, and I'm very excited. So this is just the first of five. For the first episode, we will unpack the statement, the Philippines is a Catholic country. Jail, a warm welcome to you. It's your first time in Canberra. It is my first time in Australia. Thank you so much for having me here, Nicole. All right, let's start with a big picture. The Philippines is a Catholic country, we are often told. What does this mean? Is this even true? And is that question even useful? Tell uh, us the lay of the land. Excellent. There are two ways to answer that question. One is statistically, the other one is in terms of its politics and and uh, diversity in other forms. So statistically speaking, we know that the Philippines remains to be predominantly Catholic only because 80% of the population profess that religion. And about 5 to 10% Islam, 5 to 10% Evangelical Christianity, and then um, the remaining uh, fraction would be for other new religious movements. But um, to frame religious diversity according to statistics like this, betrays the situation on the ground. What do I mean by that? Religious diversity is also manifest in terms of how other religious groups, and we have to realize that there are many religious groups uh, and denominations and traditions and even new religious movements that are asserting their presence in the public sphere in different ways. Politically, for example, they have fielded their own candidates, if not supporting certain candidates, or they're also asserting their, their, their presence in terms of, say, building their own architectural feats around the country. So there are many ways 
of um, discerning, so to speak, the visibility and presence of religious diversity in the country today. Yeah, I remember you were making this argument in your book in 2016 when you were arguing that when we think about religion in the Philippines, don't think of it as a monolithic entity because it's so comfortable for outside observers like myself to say it's a Catholic nation, therefore it's conservative, therefore the future of the Philippines or Catholicism in the Philippines is secure, therefore divorce will never be legalized in this super Catholic country. So talk us through this impression, I guess, that because it's a Catholic country, the Philippines is a conservative country. Mm, this is, in fact, a mistake, precisely because when we look at Catholicism in itself as a religion in the country, you have to diversify your understanding. On one hand, you've got institutional Catholicism, and by that we mean the leadership with its official statements. And in many cases, we know that the institution, the leadership, frames the Philippines as a Catholic country, religiously speaking, um, so much so that, that we all most neglect the presence of Islam and evangelical groups and other Christian groups in the country because of that powerful discourse. Um, but um, having said that, we also want to consider how Christianity or Catholicism plays on the ground. Uh, many Filipinos may not necessarily echo the perspectives or sentiments of uh, the Catholic institutions, say, in relation to the reproductive health law yeah, yeah, or in yes. relation to divorce. We know that uh, Philippine society is neatly divided uh, based what, on... 50 /50 it's 50-50, right? yes. really, yeah. really. I mean, it used to be, uh, the majority used to be against divorce right, yes. not too long ago, about five or six years ago, and now we know that Philippine population is already half-half with regard to divorce. And then we know also uh, on the reproductive health bill, 70% of Philippines Catholic adults supported the reproductive health bill, what was then the reproductive health bill. So very important to factor in how religiosities play on the ground in relation to people's perceptions of issues that matter to them. Mm -hmm. And of course, you talked about this extensively in your book where you focused on the Filipino youth and the yes. different practices of their religiosity yes. on how, I may have got, gotten this argument wrong, on how they express some level of individuality within mm -hmm. an institution. So walk us through your empirical findings of that work. No, I'm quite impressed that you picked up the, uh, that way. Of and course, it, uh, yeah. I'm a serious <laughs> Philippine studies scholar. And this is exactly the point of that book. I'm showing there that... Um, uh, instead of secularizing, which is the typical argument that you find about um, religious change among young people in the West and many other parts of the world, uh, for example, the rise of religious nuns right. right, in the U.S., North America, or in Western Europe, what we see in the Philippines is that you've got young people who are still very assertive about their Catholic identity, but not in ways that many leaders or many um, traditional religious individuals might expect. So, for example, I've argued there that uh, by simply asking them, what does it mean to be Catholic to you? Young people are saying that, oh, I don't necessarily have to go to Catholic Church to exercise my Catholicism or to, to go to Mass on a regular basis. I may volunteer for a relief operations or right. relief operation somewhere or support a disaster recovery somewhere and so forth. The idea being that for many young people, uh, and this is the catchphrase that I have in the book, right living is more important than right believing. Right living is more important than right believing. What does it mean? It's a very um, moral kind of um, uh, um, understanding of, of, of what it means to be Catholic today, more than it is, say, for the, the previous generations uh, for whom piety, going to Mass or praying the Rosary uh, was far more important. And the right. practice of it defined their Catholicism. Not so in the case of our young people today.
And is that finding widely shared by a lot of Philippine studies scholars doing work on Philippines and religion? Because you also edited the special issue of Philippine Studies Journal with our colleague Manuel Sapitola from the University of the Philippines. So talk us through the latest developments. That's right. The Philippine Sociological Review, you mean? Or, or Philippine, Philippine Studies, studies. as well. Oh, yeah. I, I edited right. that and then Manuel Sapitola contributed to it. Right. You're right. So it's a collection. Yeah. So this came out in 2014. And, uh, in time for Pope Francis's visit that's right. in the Philippines. That's right. So who like enjoys that. what seventy percent trust rating that's among right. Filipino yeah, that's adults? Right. Right? That's right. That's right. And I think uh, the Filipinos are the most appreciative of this pope. Right. I mean, okay. Only, yeah, and uh, maybe that makes us a papist society. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can I quote you on that? <laughs> maybe, just maybe. Okay. <laughs> so the point, yeah, the point is that um, so that was a fantastic collection and. and to those who are listening to this podcast, you may simply just Google this, Philippine Studies, Filipino Catholicism, and easily you will find it, um, down, uh, many of the articles downloadable uh, for free. Uh, the point that we, I tried to, we tried to do in that collection is to document um, how Catholicism is changing and is also critically assessed by different kinds of scholars, uh, historians, even theologians themselves, anthropologists and sociologists. Right. The argument that, um, that I am making in the introduction and also in my own piece there is that um, it, there appears to be a turn to everyday authenticity. That's a catchphrase that I use there, the turn to everyday authenticity. What does it mean? When we look at the writings about Christianity in the Philippines, it appears that um, many scholars are now recognizing that um, uh, in contrast to the arguments made by older scholars that Christianity is split level, mm, yes. meaning like Father Bulatao, yeah. we know that that is his big argument, um, that say Catholics are split level, they go to church and yet they do something else, uh, you know, uh, practice corruption and so on and so forth. Uh, that same understanding, that same um, theoretical framework has also been uh, used to analyze, say, popular religiosity. How come people still go to Mass and go to Mass? and yet they still use um, amulets, for example, so thereby creating what we know as folk Catholicism. But from the point of view of everyday authenticity, we reject these kinds of hierarchies of religiosity simply because for many ordinary Catholics, all of these are expressions of their Catholicism. Peter Breunlein, a German anthropologist, calls this 100% Catholic. So people who flagellate themselves or people who yeah. crucify themselves during Holy Week, say in Pampanga or in Bulacan, they might be accused of not being faithful to, 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 to the Catholic uh, doctrine or to the Catholic practice because you don't really need to you know, to, to, to crucify yourself. Um, but, but for these people, this actually expresses their Catholicism. Yeah. I actually like that kind of discussion when we talk about religiosity in the Philippines because when we think about practices in the Philippines, it's always assessed based on a you know Enlightenment European standard. Either we're not secularizing correctly or we're not being Catholic correctly. Exactly. And Either I think way, that's kind of, yeah. it's really annoying and it's really not meaningful instead of thinking about these things ethnographically That's from right. the ground That's and try right. to theorize the kind of practices that we have as a nation. Absolutely. Those perspectives are in fact orientalist. We're always inadequate. Right. Either exactly. not Catholic enough or either not secular enough. Right. So self-flagellation during Holy Week, you think, is an expression of it, everyday expression because when you Yeah, anthropologists have interviewed these people and they would say that that, oh, this is very much in line with our Catholic identity. We're doing this because we are Catholic, not, be, not in spite of. 
Right, and it's not a less form of articulating That's religiosity. Right, yes. That's the argument of a lot of contemporary... Contemporary social scientists. So the, the, the job of any observer, therefore, whether you're a journalist or a commentator about religion in the Philippines today, is to simply take a, back, take a step back and, and understand why are people doing this? devotees of black, the black Nazarene is another uh, or you know they, they, they provide another way of understanding Catholicism in the Philippines why do they have to go through all the mess and uh, um, early uh, January to, <clears throat> to to follow hundreds of thousands of other devotees and in order to suffer and sacrifice themselves but precisely because this is the whole point of being Catholic in the Philippines today it is true to who they are as Catholics. All right. Well, Jail, make my day and let's shift gears to mm. politics. Politics, <laughs> okay. Of course, I would like to ask you about the influence of religious movements in the Philippines. And my reading of your work and the work of other um, Philippine study scholars on politics is that there are, of course, many ways to think about the church or religious movements in politics. Uh, we can first talk about, for example, how the Catholic Church does not shy away from stepping into politics and in critical historical junctures, even being the loudest voice in ousting presidents. So for our listeners who are still getting acquainted with Philippine politics, there is a popular narrative that the Catholic Church has been instrumental in two people power revolutions, one that ousted the dictator Ferdinand Marcos in 1986, where Cardinal Sin, the Archbishop of Manila, appealed to the people in the airwaves of Radio Veritas um, to march to EDSA, and he also appealed to the military not to hurt or to, to inflict violence against its own people. And again in 2001, when Jail and I were undergraduate That's students, right, yes. Back right, in the, day. Um, the Catholic Church was at the forefront in a political campaign to oust President Joseph Estrada because of corruption allegations and other immoral deeds like womanizing, alcoholism, gambling. So I think what I want to ask you is, where are we now? Where is the Catholic Church in Rodrigo Duterte's Philippines? Excellent question. We have reason to believe, Nicole, that the public presence of the Catholic Church with regard to political issues like this may have started to wane already. Uh, surveys show that more and more Filipinos do not like it when priests use the pulpit to oh, talk about okay. politics. Right. Um, in fact, we know, as I mentioned a while ago, that about 70% of Filipino Catholic adults supported the reproductive health bill, and even if many Catholic priests and even uh, institutional leaders themselves have voiced their resistance to what was then called the Reproductive Health Bill. That resistance be has become more, and, I, and maybe what I can say is that the reproductive health, the drama over the Reproductive Health Bill surfaced the sentiment of many Catholic Filipinos that the church should be less and less involved in politics. So this is no longer 1986 and 2001. Uh, what does this mean for the Catholic Church? I understand from a theological perspective that the Catholic Church sees itself as a, a prophet. It has a prophetic role in the public sphere to resist what it sees as moral decline or political mistakes, anything that could affect the public. And this harks back to the understanding that the Philippines is a Catholic country and therefore its morality must be upheld. Sometimes it backfires, sometimes it works, but generally speaking, this is a difficult game now for the Catholic Church. 
What parallels that development, interestingly, in my view, is now the increasing assertiveness of other religious groups. You've got Iglesia Ni Cristo, even Jesus is Lord, even Apollo Kiboloi's uh, Kingdom of Jesus Christ in Davao. And we can name many other religious groups that are making their presence felt in the political and public spheres in Philippine society today. Some of them have fielded their own candidates. Some of them have expressed their resistance to certain policies or support for certain other policies. Is this unique today? Not necessarily. We know that even in the 1970s and 1980s, the evangelicals have been very vocal about certain political issues. But what makes it more perhaps fascinating in the 21st century is that you have a bigger and a more diverse group of Christian groups, you know, Christian denominations and, and religious movements at play now. So there is a fragmentation of influence when it comes to relig religious movements in the Philippines that the Roman Catholic Church, you think, fearless forecast, mm -hmm. does not have the same power that it did in 2001 and in 1986 when it asks the people mm -hmm. to go to the streets and oust this president. They cannot do that in Duterte's Philippines. Oh, they can do that, but they need to do that in a very wise manner because, as I have argued in one of my opinion pieces for Rappler um, some, uh, a year ago, um, the Catholic Church should be very wise in terms of presenting itself as, um, as a, a civil society actor by simply voicing its resistance to Duterte. It does not necessarily help clarify the issues for the public and it simply adds to the noise if you will the cacophony in the public sphere but you were talking about fragmentation right so you're saying so so um so y you might get the impression that religious participation religious political participation is getting more and more fragmented in philippines right now yes but and here's my argument. Even if there are so many other religious groups now that are at work in the political and public spheres, in fact, I would argue that there is a common denominator across all of them. They're all militant. They're all, in many ways, some conservative also, right? They want to support um, uh, religious leaders that would maintain stability in society. They would, uh, they, they have, they would support. Uh, in many ways, even right-wing politics in the country. Of course, this, this, this demands a lot more research on our part, but, but the point is that you've got a lot of Christian groups that are either fielding their own candidates or supporting candidates. Um, and this is what makes them their position in the in civil society pretty tricky. Are you really religious or are you political? Right, which I guess brings me to the, I guess, second ways in which religious movements can influence Philippine politics. There is an impression that they can actually swing elections. Mm. And I think we have to unpack this. In 2019, there will be a midterm elections and we will see senators, congressmen trying to win favors from, let's say, Pastor Kibuloy, the supposedly, what does he call himself? The appointed son of God, right? Well, and they will try to get endorsement from a lot of these charismatic religious leaders. Um, does that, is that a real um, influence? Can we really say that they shape elections? Can they really shape elections? It's a very good question. There are uh, the typical impression is that they can sway elections in favor of one candidate over the other. But I think this matters more at the level of the communities or local governments more than it does, say, at the level of national elections. 
Iglesia de Cristo has conservative estimates about 2 million or 2.25 million voter uh, members. Not everybody votes, but we also know that it depends again on the surveys. Um, about 80% or so of them adhere to the endorsed candidates of the of their leadership. Right. Right. And but for our listeners, Iglesia de Cristo is one of the fastest growing, in, growing indigenous churches in the in, world. In the world, yes, fast. Right. Yeah. So it's an indigenous church in the Philippines. Iglesia de Cristo in English is Church of Christ, and it celebrated its 100th anniversary in 2014, and it believes to be the the one true the true form of Christianity in this day and age, which is in, in effect the end times already. And this is a very important theological assertion on the part of um, Iglesia Ni Cristo that sets them apart from other religious groups. But they're no longer just a religious group. They're very much politically involved because... Um, they're known for block voting. For right? block voting, of course, when you talk to the church officials, they would not say that they vote as a block or they, they endorse certain and candidates, okay. yeah, uh, but, but, but these are theological nuances. From an outsider's point of view, they vote as a block, right? right? Uh, but, but it is a theological matter as far as they are concerned because um, to them, uh, Iglesia Ni Cristo has a theology of unity that, that, the, that the endorsement of the leadership needs to be respected by practically everyone in the church. Uh, regardless of whether they subscribe to these political uh, candidates or they support these political candidates or not, because the unity of the church is at stake. But there is a recent, there is a survey recently. Um, I can't remember the specific statistical uh, data now that shows that, in fact, not quite a lot of people have followed the line of oh, really? the leadership. Okay. Yeah, right. but we have to check that because this is always tricky. You know, when you right. conduct surveys like this. Um, you know, after the elections, and yeah. some people may not necessarily, uh, you know, say whatever. In fact, they did. You know, during yeah. the elections, uh, but but yeah. So but so 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 to what extent they sway elections in favor of national candidates remains to be a tricky question to answer. The same thing for Apollo Kibuloy. The same thing for the for the evangelicals. We know that um, um, again to just. To, to, to reinforce my point, we know that many evangelicals supported uh, Brother Eddie Villanueva when he ran not once but twice for, for president, president yes. and, yeah, and, and once for, for a senator, but not once did he mm. win uh, in any of these elections. The idea was that there was a born-again Christian bloc, but apparently there's none. Precisely because, and this is where sociology of religion really matters, on the ground, you see that the institution is very, very much fragmented. And I think the third one is kind of curious to me. And now we're going through your entire body of work because I read <laughs> your piece at the journal uh, Religion, State, and Society, where you actually argue that Iglesia Ni Cristo um, has expanded its power, not just to the voting bloc, but really to the concept of civic engagement. And yes. my reading of this work is the church now acts as this institution for redistribution of wealth and welfare among the people. Is that a fair interpretation, that you have this religious organization serving the function of the state? Exactly. So an alternative state, if you will. Right, an alternative right? state. Alternative state. And this has become increasingly the big role of Iglesia Ni Cristo in particular, and some other churches, I have to admit, uh, say in the wake of Typhoon Haiyan, 
But this is not just unique to Iglesia Ni Cristo. Civic engagements are already the mark of other religious movements in the country. We know that uh, Tsuchi, for example, a Buddhist, Taiwanese Buddhist religious movement, uh, has played and continues to play big, imp uh, big roles in disaster recovery in the Philippines. And because we are a country of disasters, literally and figuratively, you expect that Tsuchi would always be there. And evangelical churches are also playing uh, their part. What does it mean? I, th I have to explain that, yes, you're right, that this is increasingly the interest of my scholarship now, because I see that, as I said, in the, as we were at the onset of this podcast, that uh, religious diversity in the Philippines needs to be understood, not just in terms of statistics, but in terms of how these other religious minorities are asserting themselves. A while ago, we talked about their political um, game, if you will, but now I am also seeing that religious groups are making their presence felt through civic engagements. Uh, this is called religious philanthropy in the literature. Uh, when you talk about Buddhism, this is uh, uh, Buddhist engagements, uh, Catholic Church. It, of course, the Catholic Church has a very long history of charitable works and, yeah. and, 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 and acts um, around the world. But, but I am less interested in the Catholic Church than I am, say, in other religious groups because we are seeing that they are making them, uh, their presence more visible in this manner. So, to go back to your point, is this a demonstration of themselves as an alternative state? Yes, that's one. But the other point that I want to make also is that these churches, we have to realize, are making their presence felt not just locally but internationally. This is where my whole point about religious worlding comes in. So these are, Iglesia Ni Cristo may be the fastest growing indigenous church, Filipino indigenous church in the world today, but it is not just a religion in the Philippines, it is a religion in the world. You go to Africa, they're there. You go to North America, they're there. You go to Western Europe, they're there. Buying properties even from old religions and converting them into their own worship halls. It's the same thing for Jesus is Lord. Evangelical churches, congregations in North America, Hong Kong, Singapore, and where, and where else. The same thing for every nation, which is the head movement of Victory Church yeah. and, and so on and so forth. We can go on and on and I see that these churches are making their presence felt around the world. Their headquarters are in the Philippines, they're born in the Philippines, but they're out there in the world. So what does that say about the nation? Exactly. The, so the narrative of religion in the Philippines is no longer about suffering. It is about triumph. I think I want to shift gears a bit because we are talking about yeah. the, look, the religion in the Philippines um, taking a claim globally. But of course, we also have to look at the region. And when we see mm. Malaysian politics, Indonesian politics, we are also talking about political Islam. Yes. Um, what sorts of comparison can we, if any, can we draw for the Philippines? Right. Uh... Comparisons need to be both direct and indirect. Indirectly, we have to see that, we have to recognize that Islam is a minority religion in the Philippines, but we also know that if we look at Catholicism in the Philippines as a majority religion, it has been playing a big role, uh, or it has played a big role in, in politics, and we know that Islam continues to do that, say, in Indonesia or in Malaysia, and 
and I have to admit that this is quite the character of majority religions wherever you might ah, be see. in Southeast so it's Asia. It's not an Islam issue. It's an issue no. of dominant religion. Buddhism. Right. You know, okay. Buddhism in Thailand, Buddhism in Myanmar, right. and and even Buddhism, which is which people wrongly assume to be the only religion of peace in the world, um, has its own violent extremist tendencies. We see this uh, certainly in um, uh, in in mainland Southeast Asia, and we see this certainly in the case of Islam in. Malaysia and in Indonesia, and certainly in Christianity in the Philippines. Why is this the case? Because these religious groups, because they are the majority, they see the nation not only as a political space, but also as a religious space. So the imaginary is not only secular, the national imaginary is also religious, even if the constitution might deliberately say that these are non-religious or secular. Societies. Right. Yeah, for better or worse. For right? better or worse, of, yeah. course, of course. So I think one of the last questions I want to ask you is kind of like a free-for-all question. So yeah. aside from the themes that we've already tackled, we talked about the church and politics, we talked about the changing articulations and performances of religiosity um, in the Philippines. Are there other emerging trends or patterns that you spot um, with practices of religion in the country? This is an exciting question that uh, through which I could promote my forthcoming article. <laughs> my fourth, my fourth no shock there. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no I'm a, I try to be humble. <laughs> as, a, as a religious tenet. So I am contributing to the Edinburgh Companion to Global Christianity, and they are, produ they are releasing a volume on East and Southeast Asia very soon. And the, in, in, in my chapter there, I describe Christianity in the Philippines in two ways. It's militant, and it's global, militant and global. This, in my view, these, in my view, are the trends of religious change in the Philippines. I'm a sociologist of religion, and primarily my interest is in how religion is changing. And I'm no longer just interested in Catholicism. I'm interested in Iglesia Ni Cristo. That is quite obvious now. I'm interested in Jesus is Lord, evangelical churches, and even Apollo Kiboloi down south. The point is that um, these churches are very militant, one, in terms of their political presence, two, their uh, political conservatism and their attitudes towards what we might consider as liberal scholars, as liberal values, uh, you know, and in terms of divorce or same-sex marriage and so on and so forth. These religious groups are completely conservative, in many ways echoing the Christian right in the U.S. So militancy in the U.S., you find resonances also in the Philippines, militant, that's one. The other uh, trend that I am seeing, and I am forcefully arguing, is that Christianity in the Philippines is global. Whether, again, it's Jesus is Lord, or, or Victory Church, or Iglesia Ni Cristo, or even Apollo Kibola's Kingdom of Jesus Christ, they have a global outlook. And by this, I mean not only transporting themselves wherever wherever Filipinos are. This is the narrative of Christianity, say, in the 1980s, 1990s. You go wherever the Filipinos are, follow them there. Today, that is no longer just the narrative of these religious groups. They are actively converting other nationalities, which is why Iglesia Ni Cristo has its programs in Portuguese, French, German, and so on. And, and their own cable channel. Their own cable channels broadcast around the world. They're present also, certainly, on social media. This is not unique to Iglesia Ni Cristo. You find it among Victory Christians. They've got their own training center in uh, Bonifacio Global City with the clear mandate of missionizing uh, the rest of Asia and other parts of the world. 
And this narrative may have begun in the 1980s, post-1986, where during which the hope of many Filipinos of the country was also paralleled with the, the emergence of, of new religious movements at that time. Evangelical Christian churches, many of them were born in the 1980s. And now we're seeing uh, their flourishing about 20 or so years later on. Right. Very global. Right. It's incredibly fascinating. So I guess in conclusion, and to summarize everything that we discussed, is the Philippines a Catholic country? Does that question make sense? It doesn't make sense anymore. While for other people, it might still make sense because of the predominance of Catholicism among the population. In reality and on the ground, this is no longer the case. We, My research and many of social scientists right now, are our studies are an invitation to the public to start seeing and recognizing religious diversity in the Philippines today. This matters. Why? Because if we are not sensitive to the diversity in our country, sooner or later we may have conflicts that we don't want to have in the first place. All right, there you have it. Thank you, Jayil. Jayil Cornelio is the author of the book, Being Catholic in the Philippines, Young People Interpreting Religion, published by Routledge in 2016. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Nicole, for having me. That was New Mandala's Philippines editor, Nicole Corrado, speaking with J.L. Cornelio here at the Australian National University. As we mentioned, this is the first of a few podcasts we're doing that take a look at the Philippines beyond the cliches. Next up, Nicole's going to be speaking to Professor Ron Mendoza from the Ateneo School of Government about the problem of political dynasties in the Philippines. Are they really as bad as everyone thinks they are? If you're listening to this at SoundCloud, remember that you can also subscribe to all of our audio releases at iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Just do a search for New Mandala. Thanks for listening.